This week I had originally planned to talk about women in bourbon, but we'll have to save that topic for another week. Over the last few weeks, I've been putting together the idea of a primer for those that are new to bourbon. Not a primer about which bourbons are essential or what unicorn you should be hunting, more of a list of people you might encounter as you transition from picking up a bottle off the shelf once in a while into adopting bourbon as a hobby. As a quick disclaimer, there will be mild profanity in today's episode. Nothing too offensive but you can't say I didn't warn you. This won't be an episode about stories either, unless you count the overall success of bourbon in the North American marketplace to be the story here. Joining this hobby can be incredibly daunting for anyone that does not already have a tie into a mentor of some type. It leaves you with the need to seek out people with some degree of guidance. Just randomly selecting a bottle off the shelf is a terrible way to explore what you want to learn. Price ranges vary greatly, and if you pay attention to the news or anything online, you'll know that you really aren't a part of a community until you start to hunt for allocated bottles. And I think that's where it all breaks. Allocated bottles are often like unobtainium, and they're very expensive. It leaves someone who is new to bourbon with a search for something that they might never find. And if they do find it, they'll shell out quite a few dollars without even having any remote idea of whether they'll like it or not. It's all senseless, really. There's an abundance of bottles that sit on the shelf daily under the $75 range that are fantastic. Great opportunities to learn about the spirit. I'm not even what one might consider to be an aficionado, but a week doesn't pass without someone asking me something like, I have $150 to spend on a bottle, what should I get? They want something special, something to brag about. My usual response is three fantastic but diverse $50 bottles for them to cut their teeth on, to identify their palate and their preferences, so I can get a better idea of what they really like before I ever make another recommendation. But why should they even listen to me? There's so much noise in the community as to who is right and wrong, and that's not even the right mindset. When it comes to taste, no one is right or wrong. It's more about who can you trust to give you legitimate direction based on what you actually like. So to aid this pursuit, I've divided the experts into three different categories. Maybe this helps. Maybe it's a little satire. Maybe it pisses you off. I hope the former with a faint flavor of the second, but if it's the third, well, it's likely I hit a little too close to home. Today is about bourbon assholes, bourbon class holes, and bourbon hipsters. You might even find that as you walk your journey of adopting this hobby, you will progress from one to the other over time. Enjoy. Welcome to the Embellished Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truth, half-truths, and outright lies, and decide if truthiness even matters. Bourbon assholes are probably going to be the first group you really encounter if you try to ask around about bourbon. They are usually the type of people who are very specific about how anyone should ever enjoy their whiskey. Likely, if you started to take this hobby seriously, you've joined a group on Facebook or enrolled in a local group where you can meet face-to-face. -face. You'll see pictures and posts about bottles people have bought and glasses that they've poured. You'll be able to spot this breed of bourbon snob pretty quickly. Let's say you posted a picture. In that picture, you have a bourbon poured in a normal glass from your kitchen with ice from the ice dispenser of your refrigerator. The self 
self-identification of the asshole will ensue as follows. Regardless of the whiskey in the glass, you'll be chastised for anywhere from one to three things. First, whiskey should only be enjoyed neat, and if it's too proofy for you, you can add a drop of water or two. Second, whiskey should only be enjoyed from a glass with a tulip shape. And third, if, and this is a big, big if, you choose to use ice, it should only be ice that is crystal clear in some large format. Each one of these groups is at a different stage of their enjoyment of the spirit. Maybe they progress to another, maybe they don't. The biggest downfall of these, and many of the rest of this group, is the fact that you should enjoy whiskey however you choose to. But there are key learnings to take from each and every subject of the bourbon asshole. Neat tasters are on a path to purity. They remind me of music snobs that will only listen to an album from the first track to the final track because that's how the artist arranged it, so that's how you should experience it. They are interested in understanding the truest sense of what the distiller and or blender is trying to do. There's a lot of merit to this too. When I try a new whiskey, I try my best to drink it neat, which kind of sucks for me because I prefer a drink, any drink, to be either hot or cold. I don't really enjoy lukewarm room temperature liquids, much like wine drinking calls for room temperature, but to wine snobs, room temperature is actually somewhere between 60 and 68 degrees, and that's even a bit warm for me. While it isn't my preference, it does give the opportunity to try it the way the distillery bottled it. As the popularity of cask and barrel-proof whiskeys increases, you'll find yourself with a glass of something over 120 proof. If you've been cutting your teeth on 90 proof whiskey, this is quite a jump. It's really a kick in the mouth, actually. Ascribing to the aforementioned practice of neat, sometimes it needs a little drop of water, or five drops, or maybe even ten, to get it to a tolerable proof for you. And that's okay. Why force yourself to drink something that you don't really like? What's interesting about this experience is that as you proof it down, it's going to change the profile of the drink. Whether you like that change or not is really going to be up to you. Next up are the tulip-shaped glassware folks. If you made the grave mistake of posting your whiskey in a normal dinner glass instead of a Copita or a Glencairn, well, this group will likely descend on you as well. Do you need special glassware to appreciate whiskey? Absolutely not. Does it help you? Maybe. Saying maybe could be considered sacrilegious here, but I've found that for those new to bourbon, and even some that have been around for a while, the tulip-shaped glassware may not help and could possibly even hinder. The purpose of tulip-shaped glassware is that it shares some of the same nuance that wine glass shapes do. Hell, you can even use a small wine glass to taste whiskey with great results. The tulip-shaped glassware achieves two or three things. By having a wide base, it allows for more surface area for air to be introduced to the whiskey to oxidize and aerate it. It gives more of a chance for the ethanol to waft off. It allows for the heavier scents to gather and linger in the bowl. The narrow opening at the top allows for the glassware to then concentrate the scent into a funnel-like situation. While this may sound pretty common sense, sometimes it's a bit of a detriment. Just a few weeks ago, I was trying Stag Jr. for the first time in my life. At over 130 proof, the Glencairn glass focused so much of the alcohol smell in a central location that it really put me off for a few minutes. And that's a detriment to me. It's an assault on the sense that if I'm not accustomed to it or ready for it, it can be off-putting. And finally, to ice or not to ice. That really is the question. As I said before, I like ice drinks. I honestly prefer them. But does the origin of the ice really matter? Do I need to go out and buy distilled water to make my ice with? Probably not. At least probably not if you don't have municipal water. For those of you relegated to city life, a Brita filter might make all the difference in the world for your ice. It's really about trying to not add any flavors to the whiskey that might change your perception of it. But that's not the end of the ice discussion. Should I use a sphere or a cube and just how big is too big? You'll undoubtedly find a plethora of folks pushing large format ice cubes or spheres. 
ice. And scientifically, they may be right. The larger the ice cube is, the longer it will take to melt, preventing further dilution. And that's great, unless you want the dilution. And that's also great, unless you like to chew on the ice as well. Yeah, I know, it's a bad habit, but it's so damn fun. To make things worse, you'll need special equipment and advance notice before you drink to be able to even craft the only way anyone should use ice. And let's be real here. The best ice in the world is pelletized ice. The stuff with all the little nooks and crannies, it cools super fast, it holds its form while it takes on a slushy-like drink once it breaks apart. And imagine that, a whiskey slushy. Delicious. But if you want to try something near neat, but not hot, you can either use a large ice cube or you can keep the bottle in the fridge. And the folks that lose their mind over that, well, they're a topic for another day. Next up, bourbon class holes. Let's start this group with a simple statement. A class hole is a sort of a, a subdivision of the asshole group, but they're a little bit more specific. While the larger group is more concerned around how you drink your whiskey, this subset is likely concerned about the same things that the, the other group is concerned with, but they're more concerned with what whiskey you actually consume. These folks will likely burn down a small town if you claim to like Willet Pot Still. God forbid you show up in a group and ask if anyone knows where any wellers are. It's amazing how much an additional S to the name of a product will generate so much ire. And we don't even have to get started on the Blanton's haters. To better understand this group, I'd segment this group by the ones who seek out limited release bourbons, the ones who buy sleepers only and the ones who are the masters of the craft or small distillery offering. They may vacillate between all of these subsects, but they have one that they'll stay true to. The class holes who seek out limited releases seem to view their ability to shelve, display, and maybe even drink bottles that no one else can get as some sort of a status symbol. Because they have the means to purchase secondary, or they have a friend that works in the industry, or they have the time to search endlessly for all the unicorns, they've achieved some degree of enlightenment. Don't get me wrong, if a bottle of Buffalo Trace Antique Collection is made available to me, I'll snatch it up quickly. If a friend ships me a bottle of Weller 12, I'll certainly display it with a sense of pride and accomplishment. But this unique group is centering their identity around the idea that these limited versions of whiskey are the truest form. And I personally push back on that idea. The truest form of whiskey is what's available to everyone. It's what you can put your hands on. It's not about being a member of a special club that you have to have something no one else can get, but believing that is a double-edged sword. Once you migrate to this persona, you walk a fine line of being a bourbon class hole that only drinks sleepers. What is a sleeper? Well, I'm glad you asked. At its truest sense, a sleeper bottle is one that is widely available, but regularly overlooked. A prime example of it is Buffalo Trace bourbon. Several years ago, it sat on the shelves daily. Someone in the know decided to write about how amazing Buffalo Trace was as a shelf staple. Panic ensued, FOMO gripped the community, and then it was gone. Only to ebb and flow in parts of the nation since then. A second example is Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. It's a bottle I've had on my shelf for a year or more. I always intend to open it and revisit it, but pass for more highly sought after bottles. I had an occasion to join a Zoom where we were discussing this bottle, and I just remembered how damn good it really is. And it's being talked about all over the place. This ascription to knowing and only drinking the sleeper is a badge of honor for some people. A chance to make the limited release guys feel lesser because they are just wasting money on unicorns when they could be spending pennies on the some superior juice. Stuff that you can get every day. It's amazing to watch some one transition from one group to the other and back again. It's about knowing more than the next person. It's about staying ahead of the next trend. 
Are you really staying ahead of the next trend if you are only talking about major brand bourbons? And that's where this third subset of class holes comes in. They seek out craft and small distillers that are likely not available to the more broad bourbon community. It's almost like being a talent scout for the NBA or MLB. You can spend some time visiting mid-major schools, then all of a sudden you found the next Steph Curry, a diamond in the rough. You get to be the record store owner that was following an obscure band before they made it big. And honestly, this is probably my favorite brand of class hole. With the boom of bourbon, there's been a tremendous growth opportunity for smallholders to gain a place in the whiskey marketplace. Folks that might have languished otherwise to scratch together a local following are being brought up on a national level through the hard work and determination of this particular group. If it weren't for the efforts of this particular in-the-know group, I wouldn't know about Catoctin Creek, Spirits of French Lick, or Frey Ranch. All three brands are doing some fun and amazing things in whiskey, but they aren't readily available to the rural reaches of western Kentucky. Each one of these groups of people are in some form or fashion a personification of my personal journey in the world of whiskey. So when I poke at this, I'm really poking at myself, and that helps to bring me to the final form. The emergence of the bourbon hipster to me has been born out of the different progressions of the different groups. It's a relatively broad group, but there's some things that will help you identify who they are and what they are about. First of all, they probably have a beard and or a bunch of tattoos. They exhibit almost counterculture tendencies. By definition, hipsters are people that want to know all of the things before everyone else does. Whether they have a willingness to share that information is another question. Mostly in the bourbon community, I've found that this group is absolutely willing to help people along the way. Help them understand the role a single barrel plays against its standard flavor. You'll find terms like off-profile coming out of their mouth. You'll also find that they've likely developed a preference for Dusties. And Dusties are just older bottles of bourbon. In a search to understand the history of bourbon in the North American marketplace, they are looking for what whiskey used to be. How it was made before more commercialization was occurring. What happened in the bourbon marketplace before the boom. Their collection will be incredibly diverse, and you'll be hard-pressed to find a bottle on their shelf that isn't open. They may even have multiple bottles of a single expression of bourbon that were bottled over a 10-15 to year period. The intent here is to be able to do an A to B comparison of how the flavor has drifted over time. The hipster can likely tell you the name of the master distiller that made their bottles. They might even have a mash bill tattooed on their arm. They probably don't actually have that, but their connection to the spirit and this community is very, very strong. I won't subdivide this group too heavily because the variation of how they interact and operate is heavily influenced by the rest of the bourbon fan types that we've already talked about. They'll be flavored by how they came through the process. These are the bread and butter of bourbon education. They're the ones that will likely be the most helpful without being incredibly insulting. This whole episode has been a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm really poking fun at the different variations of myself, but I also observe these interactions daily. If what I said pushed your buttons a little bit, examine your interactions with others a little more closely. Be careful to grow this group of fans intentionally. Realize that as we grow the consumer base, we also grow the opportunity and resources for companies to experiment, to do new and unique things. I guess the moral of the story is, try not to take your hobby so seriously. Treat the exploration of this hobby like a journey. There's a lot to be learned. There's a lot to be ignored. It'll be bumpy, but there are people that can and will help. 
Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.